We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring extraocular vision, otherwise known as seeing without eyes. My guest is physicist Alex Gomez Marin, who is currently employed by the Institute of Neuroscience in Spain. He is also the director of the Perry Center in Italy. Alex's research proposal, titled Seeing Without Eyes, received an award in the Linda G. O'Brien Research Competition, sponsored this year by the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Alex is based in Alicante, Spain, and now I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Alex. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure too, Jeff. We're going to be talking today about eyeless sight, seeing without eyes, extraocular vision. There are many, many words for, for this. And I think it's important to let our viewers know that there's a real history to, to this phenomenon. It goes back at least a hundred years. Yes, indeed. It's been, it's been found and studied and practiced and developed in different cultures in different countries throughout the years. So, for instance, there is this, this really remarkable book by Jules Romain, a Frenchman, whom in actually a hundred years ago, in 1923, 1924, wrote a book about this phenomenon and he studied it and with, with all sorts of witnesses and he described also the laws. And in the preface of the book, he says that to his knowledge, nobody has studied, he knows nothing prior to it. But then we also find if we fast forward to Mexico, for instance, in the 80s, for 40 years ago, we find work by Jacobo Greenberg, the neurophysiologist, who studied it and he learned it from somebody else and he taught it to, to kids in schools in Mexico. But then if we go back, I think, to the 60s, well, this was well known in, in, in Russia and in the US. And so there, there have been spikes of the notoriety of the phenomenon occurring. I also know it came from Indonesia and then from it it went more recently to Utah in the United States of America. It's practiced currently in the UK, in Spain, the country where I live. Surprisingly, it's taught in many cities by different coaches, some of whom were trained by Mexican so, in a way, it's all over the place, and at the same time, it's relatively under the radar. I understand that there are now numerous training programs aimed at, uh, primarily at young children, and their parents apparently will pay a lot of money for, for their children to go through this training. Yes, I, I'm not sure if it's a lot of money compared to well, other therapies. What I know is that, at least here in Spain, parents 
would like um, this kind of training, not necessarily because they want to show off that their kids can allegedly see without without their physical eyes, but because throughout the training, kids do some sort of meditation, they're more aware of where they are and in their embodiment, the breathing, and so on. And by doing that, they develop perhaps higher intuition. And so that's what I've seen that parents care about when they send their kids to these training sessions, as if you would send them to, a, you know, not necessarily a psychologist, but somebody who would, would help the kid, for instance, to, to perform better at school or maybe to, to be more communicative in the family. And that's kind of a therapeutic value of it. That's not really what I'm interested in. I'm more interested in, in the phenomenon and its, and its reality and its scientific, um, let's say, it, the, 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 what it can offer to science and also the questions it opens to science. But yes, indeed, these, these courses are, are sold as well, not just for training kids, but to train coaches that then can train kids. So, I mean, you, you've been doing this forever, Jeff. There's also an industry. There's also an industry with where, where people, you know, pay to be taught that. And maybe at the end, we can talk the pros and cons of that approach. I, I think everybody's entitled to make a living out of that, but this can also be problematic because while well, you're teaching something that, that on the one hand, I'm not fully convinced is scientifically demonstrated yet. I mean, I'm, I'm working towards that. And at the same time, um, even if, even if it's scientific or not, well, its efficacy should also be tested, I would say. But as anything that's pioneering, despite its long history, well, it deserves to be tried, and in a way, the more people that try it and the better the feedback, I think ultimately we will know what it really does and what it doesn't. If you're not convinced that it's scientifically demonstrated yet, I guess you're saying that the experiments done a hundred years ago by Jules Romain uh, have potential flaws. Well, actually, they're quite advanced, and the book is wonderful. And, and there, not only he tells us how he came to the phenomenon, but also he he tested it, and then he devotes a part of the book to explain not just whether or that it works, but also how it would work, and whether it follows similar laws as as the laws of optics. So it's I, I wouldn't critique that treaty as as uh, in terms of flaws. But uh, as a scientist studying these things that are hard, uh, as anything that you study scientifically, but this one in particular, because the phenomenon is rather, is rather slippery, I'm, I'm working towards testing it. And when I see, for instance, if I'm, I'm invited and I've been invited to, to training sessions with, with adults and with kids, other parents, other trainers, and what well, you see they are doing it. So on the one hand, I would say it's obvious it's happening. So I have no problem assuming that that's most likely going on. Now, if we want to test it scientifically, and I always emphasize the adverb, we want to test it scientifically. We're not saying it's not true. We're saying, can we submit this phenomenon to the rules of science? And what can we see when we do so? And what I've been able to see when I do so, it's not yet convincing, but at the same time, it's very promising. And by, I mean by that is that, well, you need to do, and I don't want to get technical or, or, or bore your, your audience here, but you need to do all sorts of controls and checks 
and even even weird like weird conditions that that deviate from what kids or adults would naturally do in in a, in a session and these are the kind of videos for instance that that you can watch online of kids with blindfolds doing all sort of amazing things and I've and I've seen it live but the question is I was really sure for instance that they're not seeing they're not peeping through a hole in their blindfolds and then if that can be shown then well what other tests can we do to learn more about the phenomenon for instance can we can we change the, the intensity of the light of the room? Can we put um, some difficulties, for instance, regarding whether kids can touch or not the material? Is the experimenter blind to the conditions that are being tested? And, you know, it's like, it's like climbing a ladder of tests. And the higher you climb, I would say the more certain you are that there's something there. And again, I'm not forcing anyone, especially the coaches, to, to go that route. That, that's the route that scientists, that we scientists want to walk. Um, and so that's what I'm, that's what I'm, I'm presenting this. I, I, I joke, the, the way I joke, it's serious, but that I jokingly say that is that on, on, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I believe in it. I believe it's true. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I must be a skeptic, a hardcore skeptic, and try to balance try to balance this attitude so that I, as Feynman said, that I'm not fooling myself, at least. Well, I understand one of the theories, in fact, it's sometimes called dermo-optic perception, and the implication, therefore, is that there are some kinds of little eyes or sensors of light uh, in the skin itself, and that adults and children are learning how to perceive visibly through their fingertips, for example. Indeed, indeed. And that's one of the, that's the preferred explanation of Jules Romain that I mentioned at the beginning. In his book, he ends concluding, he concludes that it's most likely that phenomenon, the idea that that information, because here we're talking about, maybe we, we, we could explain, I could step back and say, what's the claim here? The claim here is that people can perceive, get information about their surroundings and often their immediate surroundings. Because if we were talking about perceiving, for instance, something far away, that would enter more into the realm of remote viewing. But this is like close surroundings. Like, for instance, what do I have on my table now? But being able to perceive that information when you're not using vision, right? When you're not using your eyes. That's why, that's why it sometimes it's called extraocular vision. Romains call it paroptic sight. It's also called mind sight. Some people call it vibra vision. I mean, all names with all, all different schools. So, given given that this is what's allegedly going on, then then the question is, when you're when you're in front of this information, how is it possible that you're perceiving it? Now, if you're not using your eyes, what else could be could you be using? So. One proposal, and that's dermo-optical, the dermo-optical speaks that, well, you're using your fingers, so perhaps there's something in your fingers, some sensors in your fingers that are being able to convey that information. And why do people believe that that could be an explanation? Well, first, because subjects, people, often touch the material as, as if they were exploring it, and in fact they are. And also there were studies that show that people could tell different colors, not necessarily what an image is or, or what's written in a piece of pa paper, but that they could sense the colors. And so a plausible hypothesis was, well, maybe 
they have um, um, sensors in their skin that can perceive those colors. And by the way, this is sometimes found in the in the animal kingdom. Too, too often we are too human centric when we discuss this kind of um, perception abilities. And some animals indeed have these sensors. Now, Jules Romain said it a hundred years ago, but they, they haven't been found. That doesn't mean they're not there. They haven't been found. Then another way we could use to rule out or test this hypothesis, whether it's the skin, well, we can cover the skin. So we can present something to somebody with blindfolds. We can come back to the blindfold issue later. We can ask them to wear gloves um, of different thicknesses, for instance, and then we can, not, we can allow them or not to touch the object. And then we can see if these talented people still can report correctly that kind of information. If they still can, then we can proceed further because some of the claims are, are even funny. Like, if I recall correctly, I mean, this, this, this phenomenon, by the way, also was popular in China, I think, in the 80s uh, or 90s through a Qigong revolution and that had some political derivatives. It's fascinating. And, and the famous case there, if I recall correctly, was a, a, a girl or a boy who could see with, with, with their ear. So the, the, the claim was that they were putting objects here and they were sensing it with the ear, right? So if, if you think that's what's going on, then a way to rule it out or to test it would be to try to cover the ear in different ways and see if they can still do it or not. So <laughs> the long answer is to say, yes, it's a possible explanation. I don't think this is what's going on. In any case, you could rule it out. And even if it was going on, I think there are more things going on that are even more exciting and that take us from an undiscovered sensor into the realm of extrasensory perception. So perception without use of any sense, be it a, a receptor in the skin or, or some, some other of the five senses that we commonly use. Well, you mentioned remote viewing earlier, which almost sounds like eyeless sight because the objects being perceived by remote viewers might be hidden in a box or even thousands of miles away. So, dermo-optic perception would be ruled out, and yet there are now many experiments in, in remote viewing with statistically significant results, and there are certainly e examples reported in the military work of instances where the viewers are practically 100% accurate in describing very complex and detailed targets. Totally, totally. And this is a huge literature that I'm still reading and digesting because it's, it's, it's very rich and, and also very popular. And so one metaphor that I use is a, is a tentative way of thinking about this. I mean, generally, Jeff, I call these the edges of consciousness. And I don't claim any particular wisdom by, by calling that like that. But I call them edges of consciousness because they're both frontier of our knowledge and also because they're marginalized. So I'm playing with this double, double meaning of the word. And these edges of consciousness, I imagine them as... You know, if you imagine the Lord of the Rings on the map with the cities or Game of Thrones, for instance, well, there's some phenomena that live in the cities. They're really worn out. They're really well studied. This is more like the orthodox neuroscience or psychology, if you wish. And then there are others at the edges. Now, what can we find at the edges? All sorts of phenomena. When it comes to perception, we find, let's say, a big island that we call remote viewing. I think extraocular vision is kind of a nearby island 
um, maybe an archipelago, because it's also related, it could be thought to be related with lucid dreaming, for instance, right? Now, are they the same or are they different? Well, we don't know. You know, islands sometimes are connected under the, underneath the water. And so it's not so important to me now to be able to say this is a phenomenon per se of its own right. Maybe extraocular vision is remote viewing in the limit when the distance are really, really small, meaning here now. But I've also, from what I've read about remote viewing and from what I've seen and studied of, of this phenomenon, extraocular vision, there's something quite peculiar, especially about how kids do it, or if you want to be a bit pedantic and scientific about how kids allegedly do it or how they say they do it. And they say they, I mean, this is fascinating, by the way. I love what's called phenomenology, which is what people say about what they perceive, you know? Let's, it's not the ultimate truth, but let's, let's pay attention and take it seriously. So you can ask a kid or an adult to try to perform, and then you can ask, how did it go? How did you do it? So young kids um, say that there's this small screen, like, you know, they have their, their eyes closed, blindfolded, but then they see there's this small light that they can make grow sometimes, and that this can make become like a small screen, and that they see through this screen. And then they say, and this is really interesting, that they, some of them say that they see through the screen as they would see with their eyes open. So the claim is, as I'm seeing you right now, they're seeing what they're seeing with their eyes closed. To me, that doesn't look like remote viewing, from what I know, because remote viewing seems like more like you're, you're diving and, and, and grasping something and then going up and then going down again and then composing what you're seeing. And, and so that seems to be a really intriguing difference for kids. But then... It's true that when you stretch the phenomenon, maybe that's kind of when you cross from one, one island to another, as you're asking somebody to, to do different things. For instance, you can present a, an image, simple image, and say, well, what is it? What, what do you see there? Of course, with, with eyes closed. And maybe they can touch it, or maybe you don't allow it to touch it. And maybe they just describe precisely what it's in there. But sometimes you also get whiffs of remote viewing, like saying, hmm, this, this smells like fire, for instance. And what else? What else is in there? Well, and I, I kind of hear kind of a mechanical noise, for instance. And then if you do this properly, you realize that there, they seem to be describing the image, but it's not like a direct perception as perhaps young, young kids would do it. So what I'm trying to say that even within what I call extraocular vision, there could be different modalities or different ways of doing it. We don't know. I have seen various documentaries that show young children reading books. So, you know, read a whole paragraph of a book, for example. That's something I don't think you ever find in remote viewing, reading a, a book word for word like that. So it does suggest something uh, different is going on. Indeed, indeed. And I've seen it myself live. And then I've done some tests, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, I've asked the coach and the parents and the kids, well, may you now try to do this? And the goal here with the scientific mind is do a perturbation, something, something nice and smooth, to see at what moment their ability to read a paragraph disappears. So you can do things like, well... Can you place something in front 
of the text you're reading. Or you can give, this, give them the same text, but now the font is much smaller. Or you can put the text further, further away until, for instance, through the, the, the normal laws of optics, like when you go and make your, test your glasses, for instance, you should not be able to read it, right? And for instance, some people are still able to read it when it's far away. In fact, I've been told by a coach, this I haven't seen it directly, that a young girl who uses kind of thick glasses, well, takes the, off the glasses and can see things, right? So again, it's, it's a gray spectrum where it seems to be happening and it seems to be happening also when you perturb it. But at the same time, this has also happened to me, and I must be fair because I just try to report what I see. Sometimes when I ask people to put something in between the blindfold and the piece of text, then they cannot read it anymore. What does that mean? I don't know, right? Because in the limit in which the piece of paper would go all the way to the blindfold, if they can see with the blindfold, they should be able to see with the piece of paper. Now you can also try <laughs> to use different materials. You can lose aluminum foil. You can use a thicker piece of paper. And, and, and this is, again, this is the, the challenge. How to transform those playful, um, entertaining activities? Because if kids are practicing, it has to be a game. And also they cannot do this for two hours, and perhaps you cannot ask them to repeat the same boring thing 20 times. So how can you transform that playful moment into something that looks more like a, a scientific test? And when you do that, many times the phenomenon vanishes like as if you were catching water on your hands and it's slowly dripping and dripping. That happens. So we need to keep on working. <laughs> well, one of the interesting angles uh, for exploring this phenomenon is to work with people who are legally or thoroughly blind, who, who, whose eyes aren't working at all. So there's no possibility of peeking. Totally, totally. And there's this article by Gardner, uh, a famous skeptic with K, you know, because there are different kinds of skeptics, by the way. And I think we should all be skeptics, but perhaps not of that kind, if you know what I mean. But Garner wrote an article in Science, I think, in 1966, making explicit mention about this phenomenon. And he said, as a skeptic of his kind would say, whatever, I don't care. I work with magi magicians, and magicians always find a way to trick. Therefore, if magicians can do it, this means that most likely any claim that this phenomenon is happening, it's not happening. It's a trick. And so in that paper, he, he spoke about the um, peeping, right? So, so that's the eternal problem that it's annoying to me because everybody uses blindfolds and they should. But it's true. If you use a blindfold, there's always little chance that some light can go through here because of the nose. You can have different models of blindfolds. I've tried not not them all. I've, I haven't tried them all, but I've tried many. This is <laughs> this is a bit boring, but it's important now. So what did he say then? Well, he said first that Houdini could do it. So if a magician can trick it, therefore they don't believe it. So, but he said if this would be tested in somebody whose eyes are not working, then of course we wouldn't have this blindfold um, caveat. And so I, I felt that was, that was quite um, 
ironic and timely because that would be like a, what I call a triple blind condition, right? The person doesn't know, the experimenter doesn't know, plus the person is blind. So the question is, are there blind people out there who can do that? Where are they? Can we find them? And if we find them, do they want to participate? And by the way, if we rewind a hundred years to Jules Romain again, again, one of, of some of, of his subjects were, if I recall correctly, injured from the war. And so I think he had also tested blind men. And he reports, there are no plots in that book, but he reports they could do it. Now, lucky for me, I was introduced to a blind man who allegedly, I must use the word allegedly, could do it, right? So I've been in contact with him. He's lovely. I, and we, perhaps we even became friends by, by now because of the time we spent together. And in, the, in his case, he still uses blindfolds. The kind of blindfolds, by the way, that, that are used in, in sports for, for, for blind people, like, like soccer or football, as we would say. And so blind person using blindfolds, and then with all the rest of controls. Now, if they can still do it, then of course it's not vision. Although <laughs> I'm a bit, I'm a bit tedious with this, but you must always look for the 1% small detail that could just ruin your whole claim. Yes, you must make the distinction between whether these people are legally blind or congenitally blind. Meaning, were they born blind or if they weren't, how blind are they? Because you can be declared blind from a legal point of view and you can still see a little bit, right? But in any case, the chances, or if you can put it this way, the burden of proof, it starts shifting to the other side, right? Because if you're doing all of these tests and you have a blind person and using blindfolds and so on, and they can still do it, then... The possible explanations from a normal versus an anomalous point of view changes balance. Now, one thing I can say about this particular man, and, and, and I know other people have studied blind men in other situations, like in near-death experiences, it's fascinating. Well, there's something about the phenomenology of blind people that's both sad and also wonderful, because they, they, they explain to you, um, if they became blind, what happened and also how they, they started perceiving the world through other senses and perhaps beyond the senses. So they are obviously very sensitive people by necessity, but at the same time you can ask them, well, how do you dream? So this friend of mine now told me, well, I, I was dreaming and I started losing the color in my dream. So it's like your TV, your dreaming TV becomes gray, black and white, not color anymore. Now, it turns out that in his case, he did a lucid dreaming workshop. And then he started to recover colors in his dreams. That's fascinating. And then he did other workshops along those lines. And then he started to perceive things in his environment that it's not like you're perceiving because you know that you're, you're there because it's your house or maybe because you're using touch or even echolocation that some people can use. You could, he, he felt he was perceiving them through all beyond the senses, right? And then again, I invoke the, the, the metaphor of, of, the, of the map and the islands and the mountains. What is it? You know, what's that kind of spontaneous way of sensing what's around? I don't know if we should call it extraocular vision or remote viewing. These are names we use. But the fact is that some blind people have this, this talent and they are conscious that they have it and they're willing to share it. And, and that's, 
that's a, a, a marvelous opening, a marvelous window, because you have, again, strategically two choices. You can try to find as many people as you can and do statistics over hundreds of people, and sometimes that's a good path scientifically, but other times you, you'd rather go and look for the very best. And I use this analogy also to talk to my skeptics, <laughs> the skeptical friends. You, if we didn't, for instance, have two daughters, if, we, if I hadn't taught them how to swim, they would drown. I mean, learning a kid, seeing a kid how, see, seeing a kid learning to swim, it's amazing because one day they would miserably drown and all of a sudden they can do it and then they perfect it and then they're great swimmers, right? So you can go and find those natural swimmers or you could just do statistics over thousands of kids that cannot, cannot swim and they would all drown and then you would conclude that the phenomenon is impossible, right? So, well, I, I lean in this case towards, like in remote viewing, towards finding talented subjects that are, that are willing to collaborate and, and, and show what they can do. And this is also challenging because when you ask people to show you what they can do and if you've played an instrument at home and then if you want to play in front of 10 people with cameras, right? Well, you probably don't play so well. So there's performance anxiety involved. It's a whole other issue, right? How you do it so that, so that if there's something there, you can still measure it. But going after talented people is, is so important. And by the way, the moment I started writing and saying that I'm interested in this phenomenon and that I'm studying it, some people wrote me from, not too many, but some people wrote me from different places of the world saying, well, look, for instance, a, a blind woman wrote to me and said, I, I think something similar may happen to me sometimes. And so I got a chance to talk to, to that person. And so you discover, as in, as in near-death experiences, when you tell them, it turns out that some people have had them and they would not say it unless they know you're receptive to listening to it. I gather that uh, in terms of people who are blind, there are special programs available to teach them to develop eyeless sight and uh, other forms of sensitivity to compensate for their blindness. Honestly, I don't know so much about the specifics of those programs, but I have a, a really good friend here in Spain called Jordi Invert, and he has been a coach for quite some years now. And they do kind of the regular um, coaching for kids. They do training for adults who want to be coaches. And then they have kind of a, 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 a more f um, socially, socially involved activities when they, they, they do it for blind people for free. And of course, the, the kind of training there must be necessarily different. But I think the, the goal is the same. The goal is to, the goal is to trust your intuition, the goal is to work on your awareness, the goal is to set aside your limiting beliefs, and if lucky, and if you practice, well, why not? And, and as far as I, I know, they've done it with a few blind people, and they've also tried to contact the, the Spanish Organization for the Blind, but then it becomes problematic because you see, um, this is, um, this is, these are political social matters. But I hope that the, 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 the mouth to ear, as we say in Spanish, I don't know if you, if you use this expression in English, like people telling people telling people will, will spread 
Because one other thing that I've, I was told by my blind, by my blind man, my friend, is that amongst blind people, they don't talk about their blindness. You see, they they go through this um, yeah unfortunate situation. They cope to the best of their ability. Then they're classified according to their you know their condition, and and that's it, right? So. As he says, my friend, well, we may be blind in our eyes, but we're not blind with our mind. And so that can all, regardless of extraocular vision and all that we're talking about, if blind people would talk among themselves and share that, well, perhaps they, they would discover that, that they can perceive more than they believe they can. And the same for us, by the way, the same for us um, and for, any, for anyone, I would, I would dare to say. You know, a similar phenomenon occurs, and I thought of it primarily as channeling, not blind reading. But my wife has exhibited this in a dream state, in the hypnagogic state, where she's half awake, half asleep. She'll see, it's almost like a little tape running in front of her visual field, one letter at a time. And if you give her a keyboard, she's awake enough, she can type out the letters as she sees them. And out will come a little essay, something that's not produced by the conscious mind at all, but it appears to her letter by letter. So she's not even consciously aware of what it is that's being typed out until she finishes. Yes. Yes, that, that's fascinating. And the, the power of the unconscious mind is, is unfathom, and unfathomable, probably. And incidentally, if I recall correctly, back to Jules Romain again, because I was wondering why did this man became interested in this phenomenon to begin with, if he says he hadn't read it anywhere. And it's because of sonambulism. That was fascinating. People waking up with their eyes closed sometimes and just being able to walk through the room without crashing into into the wall and the door. You could say they know the, the house by heart, but in any case, yes, there are many things our unconscious mind can do. And by the way, that's why if you do these kind of studies, these kind of experiments, these kind of controls, you must also be very careful with subliminal cues and all the possible because this is about this is about information transfer, reception, and sometimes also emission that, that we cannot explain or that we claim we cannot explain through the normal uh, means, right? And so the unconscious mind is something that because it's unconscious, we, we are not aware it's going on. So that's why you need to be especially careful. And, and, and this is why all these experiments are required like this. Now, what, let me say, what really interests me about all of that, I mean, I, I enjoy it whatever it is, because it's, it's kind of human nature, it's what humans do, it's what human minds show, what they say they can do, and so on. But what really interests me, because, you know, I'm a physicist and I'm also a neuroscientist, and this phenomenon, or this phenomena, widely speaking, to me represent a window or a backdoor through which we could hope, perhaps, to show that minds are more than brains. This is, I could say, my agenda. Although scientists should appear dispassionate, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm passionate and I'm dispassionate. But what's really fascinating for me, what I think is a great opportunity, is that if we can, you know, just just get a hold on this phenomena scientifically, 
then we could refute what I think is a really pernicious, not just wrong, but pernicious idea that minds are nothing but what brains do, which is the, 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 the holy mantra of materialism, reductionism, and mechanicism. And these are like, these are metaphysics, these are philosophies that are still in the 21st century sold as if they came from brain scanners, as if you just go do your experiment and the data says so. But quite the contrary, uh, the data is one thing and the interpretation you make is another. And it would be fascinating if we could ex at least explore, at least entertain. We don't need to rush. We don't need to say it's like that. But if we could uh, entertain an alternative hypothesis to what brains do, and a way, a simple way to put it is, and this was written by William James in 1898, I think, on an essay called On Immortality, by the way. And he said, there's no doubt that thought, he was talking about thought, and of course thought is not the same than, 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 than consciousness, and consciousness it's, it's not necessarily the same as mind, and we can go to the East and learn all these subtle differences. But for the time being, he said, thought, it's clear it's a function of, of what brains do. Because, you know, if you, if you hit me on the head, well, I, I lay unconscious, right? Although one could say some subtle things about that anyways. He said, there's no doubt that there's a dependence, there's a relationship, this, this kind of strange marriage between minds and brains. Now, what's not clear is the nature of that relationship. Meaning, is the brain productive? or permissive of the mind, let's put it this way. And still today, 99.9% .9 of my colleagues don't even think, they take for granted that brains produce consciousness, but it's still possible that they don't produce like, like a lamp that you, you, know, you scrub and then you don't know somehow, somewhere, sometimes the thing emerges, but perhaps they're more doing the other way around. Mind is there and they receive it, they're filtered. They filter it. Now, this kind of phenomena are a door to be able to show or test this second interpretation. And so if we can do that, I think this can change, well, the neurosciences and maybe even physics. And now being a physicist, I'm super excited about that because a hundred years ago, as you know, quantum physicists just realized they bunged into the, 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 the walls of the of the scenery, like in the in the movie Truman Show, right? They realized looking looking after matter, like okay, let's break this, let's break this, let's see what's inside, and they realized, if I can put it poetically, that matter is made of mind somehow, that their minds play a role that they cannot get rid of. This this dream of I put my white lab coat and I'm not there all of a sudden, just my object, but the subject is not there. Well, that dream was shattered. I think right now in the neurosciences, we're starting to leave that revolution or maybe that, that little earthquake that's growing, realizing that we, we were so convinced that the brain is doing it all, it's creating it all, and maybe it's the other way around. Maybe what's primary, it's not the brain that produces mind or consciousness, but what's primary, it's consciousness. And then we, need, we still need to understand what what the brain is for and what the brain is doing. So to add one more thing, when we say beyond the brain, there this, you know, this, we speak, we want to go beyond the brain. And I say, yes, beyond the brain and back to the brain, because we still need to figure out 
how the brain is doing that. And for instance, psychedelic studies today are another window of opportunity to understand or to look at this brain from this completely different perspective. So it's, you know, it's all very exciting empirically and theoretically as well. I would think you would learn a great deal about the mind-brain interface, however it is, for example, by comparing what goes on in the brain with normal vision, eyesight, uh, for example, and compare that to the uh, activity of the brain during eyeless sight to see if, if there are differences or if they're the same. Yes, yes, totally, totally. And another way to put this, maybe going through a, a long detour, is that we still live, we still incarnate the wounds of, of the division, the, the split, the cut between mind and matter. Now, no matter how much we want to emphasize mind now, what it's, what it's clear is that at the end of the day, people say what they, what they saw or write what they saw and, and they do it with their hands and with their tongues that are no doubt commanded by their brains. So this needs to be translated back into brain activity. And I don't want to be a dualist here. What I'm trying to say is precisely what you what you what you're pointing to, which is let's look at the brain and let's learn differences exactly as to what's going on in in different areas. Some that may be related, especially to of course to vision but maybe other senses too, because probably we can find similarities or maybe we can find differences and that can guide, get, get, can tell us something about, well, that so-called extrasensory perception must be filtered in this case or translated into neural activity, most likely. And, and so this seems to me like we're suing what we cut. We're weaving together mind and matter and and that's the way forward yes um the the the, the so-called res cogitans right the, 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 and res extensa which was the division that the card made the, the the think the rest the thing in latin the thing that thinks and res extensa the thing that is extended and um, perhaps they blend as as if you would put butter on the bread and you would spread it out and at the end of the day they're just two sides of the same coin. And again, here we're using all possible metaphors to try to convey that idea. I think it's very clear in our, in our experience when we don't engage in weird abstractions and speculation, it's very clear that, that both things go together. And so this is the integrative work that, well, most sciences, the neurosciences, but also biology and I would say physics, I think this is the future of science to, to, to basically go back to what Galileo exactly 400 years ago in his book, The Assayer, he wrote in passing towards the end that on the one hand, there's touch and, mov and movement, uh, primary qualities, and on the other hand, there's senses and, you know, smell and taste, and these are secondary qualities. So as I joke, he decided some things of the world travel in first class and other things of the world travel in second class. And well, this has been a, I like to see this as a 400 year experiment. Science itself, Western science as we know it, it's a 400 year experiment. And it's gone great when I mean, we've done amazing things. But experiments also come to an end. And now we must say, well, now can we start the experiment perhaps by inverting the hierarchy here? And those who travel in first class 
please go to second class. And those who travel in second class, let's see what happens if you're in charge now. And I think that's what's going to be a new science, a new science of matter and a new science of mind. Well, I think it's very exciting that we're even able to have this kind of a conversation with you while you're there in a neuroscience institute because it's a matter of neuroscience orthodoxy, it seems, that the brain produces consciousness and to think otherwise is uh, almost a taboo topic in the neurosciences. It is taboo, but even more than taboo, and we can talk about taboo all day long and all the the, the cheeky prefixes that they use, you know, pseudo, science, super, natural, and so on, right? To, to simply, to simply um, block conversation. But more than taboo, I, I, I came to realize, because perhaps with age, I'm becoming less of a warrior and more compassionate, <laughs> maybe. I, I, I think that this is unthinkable for them. So it's not just, oh, don't talk about it. Because I've had some, I've had some deep conversations, maybe with a glass of wine, with, with, with figures in the field, you know, like really, really respectable and respected people. And I've, you know, opened myself and said, well, what do you think about that? Right? For instance, another question that's related to what we're talking, although it doesn't look like, is the question of memories. Where are memories, right? Because we've been talking so far about perception. The idea that, that at least it seems that perceptions can be localized and also non-local. And non-locality is really hard to think. Now, this is for in space, non-local in space perceptions. That's why perhaps they can access something that's far away because distance doesn't matter because in some sense I bypass space. Now, if we talk about non-locality in time, then we're talking about memory. And the question I pose to these neuroscientists, famous neuroscientists, I say, hey, well, we're always discussing where is the memory stored? Where is it in the brain? But could you at least conceive the question, a different question, which is not where is this memory stored in the brain, but whether memories are stored in the brain? And then he looked at me with all honesty. So he wasn't a kind of a dogmatic skeptic or, no, no, he said, Alex, this is inconceivable to me. I don't even know where to begin. I cannot even think that question, right? <laughs> so it takes, it takes many things, Jeff. I think it takes um, a temperament to want to ask these questions. I think it, uh, it takes having a proper theory, and maybe we don't have it yet. I think it takes scratching on to different metaphysical options in the menu. And I have my favorite ones. We can discuss them. And maybe another thing that it takes is that you have perhaps a spiritual awakening or a tragic accident or a near-death experience. Kind of a, a, I don't know from whom I'm borrowing this expression. I think I've heard it from Jeff Kripal, but I think he's borrowed it from, from somebody else. To have an ontological shock. You know, you're shaken. And then perhaps you can start to look at the world differently. And most of the people, especially in academia, cannot do it. So what should, what should we do with them? I don't know. Sometimes I, I try to persuade, sometimes I try to fight, and sometimes I just say, forget it. I'm not sure what's the right strategy. But to your point, yes, it's taboo, but it's more than taboo. It's an impossible idea. It's something they cannot, they cannot think about. And so regardless of the data you present, 
there's this joke, right? Well, here's the data. And then the person looks at you and says, yeah, very nice, very nice data, but does it work in theory? And of course, for them, it doesn't, it cannot work in theory. So their, their prior, if we think in terms of Bayesian inference, their prior, which means your current beliefs about that being possible, is so small, you could even say it's zero, and therefore, this idea that bring more data, not enough evidence, I mean, on the other hand, we need to work towards better and more evidence, but on their side, it doesn't matter how much evidence you bring, because they'll multiply it by their prior, and the prior is probability zero, so the end result is, I still don't believe in it. Therefore, this, this really misfortune um, sentence that we've all, all heard, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, what they mean by this extraordinary evidence sometimes is actually anything you can bring. Anything you can bring will not make it. So what do we do? We just continue working and, <laughs> and at some point just let them, let them be and perhaps they can let us be too. You're in a scientific institution. You're dependent upon the conventional sources of scientific funding, most of which are completely closed-minded when it comes to things that ring of, of the paranormal. But there are a handful of sources. But I think more importantly, the situation is changing with the general public. The general public has always been open to these experiences. Yes, yes. So it's not so extraordinary. It's extraordinary for them, indeed. Yes, normal people. I'm not saying they have it. They're experiencing all the time. But if if you if you haven't had, and maybe your audience, well, your audience is also, <laughs> it's also you could say bias in that in that in that direction. But I think it, it's representative the idea that if you ask, well, have you had a what you what it appears to be a precognitive dream. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. All right, new death experience. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. The sense that that you have telepathy with somebody. Maybe now, quite easily, everyone has experienced something like that. But you know, another thing we have, Jeff, we 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 have a a clash, an unfortunate clash between experiences of people and experts. So every time I, I'm I'm called as an expert, I always try to end up by saying, "Don't trust the expert." Listen to the expert, but trust your own experience, right? And, and that's why this is quite ordinary for people, but still it's presented, even in the media, it's presented as extraordinary. For instance, here in Spain, we have, we have a few really, really notorious programs, TV programs that deal with this. But of course, they also deal with this in an entertaining sense, and sometimes they distort it. But people love to watch it. On the other hand, what do we have? We have all these like respectable newspapers. Sometimes I published a, uh, an article there, and but but it's it's more the rule than the exception that then, for instance, I submit to them. By the way, I submitted them a, a, a brief essay article, thought for the lay people about extraocular vision. They they liked it, and then it came the science the the science section. And they said that was unscientific, and I was outraged. Come on, unscientific. I'm sorry. You're not scientists. I am. I can provide all these references, and you say you're not going to publish it because it's not scientific. 
the end of the day, I respect it. They are the editors, they decide. But what I'm trying to say is that we go from the entertainment and ghosts and, you know, and uh, at, at, at 1 a.m. and weird pictures and so on, all the way to nothing. And I would like it to be something more in between where these things can be talked. Like in Spain, we had a really famous program in the 90s that whose title was Let's Talk About Sex. You know, we came from a dictatorship. I mean, I was 12, so I didn't watch the program, of course, but it was a big success because all of a sudden you could talk about sex, you see? So I think we need to talk about those things, those so-called anomalous experiences, and then we'll realize they're not so, not, not so anomalous. But there's a lot of work to do, and, and especially, yes, especially in academia, because you were mentioning funding sources. I mean, I've been applying for funding sources for, for many years, to do my research, but I cannot apply to do this kind of research to the many opportunities that I have nationally, in Europe, and so on. Because they, they'll simply, they won't know what to do with the proposal. They will laugh, they will cry, they will, they will pity me, you know? And so I, I stopped doing it. And so I'm looking for alternative ways uh, of funding. And well, it's, it's something we need to solve as a community. I mean, now I'm more, I'm more in a <laughs> preacher speech mode here, Jeff, but, but we need, we need this support because our community, despite being rich with great people and a long history, it's really, really small compared to, I mean, I don't, I don't have the figures here, but let's say the funding devoted, I'm making this up, but you'll see the point. The funding devoted to study the wing formation of Drosophila melanogaster. Perhaps it's a hundred times larger than the entire funding that the entire parapsychological field has received forever, right? And then they say, well, you're not making progress. Yes. How come? I mean, we, we barely, we barely have funds. Plus we have all this <laughs> social stigma and so on, right? So, so I'm not, uh, we should not be victims, but we must, we must emphasize. And I borrowed this from Peter Bansel. He speaks about the three legs. I call it the, the noetic stool, which means we need to talk about empirical data in a way we did we need to talk about theory and we said something about it and the third leg for the stool to be stable is all these socio-political economical issues and without those i don't think we can make it either well alex what a pleasure to talk to you you are so well informed and and you think so deeply about these issues it's an honor for me to welcome you to New thinking allowed, and I look forward to many more interactions. Oh, thank you. The honor is really mine. I've watched you many years ago, and I, I would have never imagined that I would have the chance to talk to you because you've, you've had this wonderful conversation with, with people I really admire, and, and here we are, you and I talking. So thank you for the work you've done for decades. Yes, really. I'm delighted to welcome you to our program. I look forward to more interactions with you. And for our viewers, those of you who are watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here.
I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.